Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the Thrasher Horn Center for the Arts at St. John's River State College presents Southern Stories and Songs. The imagery just sings off of the page, and this is what for me, I got particularly excited about. Members of the Visiting Nurse Association of the Treasure Coast remember practicing medicine in rural Florida. She said, yes, he cut himself outside on an old can, and I put fat back and a penny on it, and I wrapped it up, and it'll be just fine. Films on Caribbean culture have relevance in Florida. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. A railroad with Pullman sleeping cars takes one in one night from Savannah to Jacksonville, Florida. Then there is a steamboat that takes one round by the open sea and up through the mouth of the St. John's River to Jacksonville. Anyone who has come to see scenery should choose this route. The entrance of the St. John's from the ocean is one of the most singular and impressive passages of scenery that we have ever passed through. In fine weather, the site is magnificent. The Thrasher Horn Center for the Arts at St. John's River State College in Orange Park presents Southern Stories and Songs. The production features the words of Harriet Beecher Stowe and Tennessee Williams and the music of Stephen Foster. In the mid-1800s, Harriet Beecher Stowe lived very near where the Thrasher Horn Center for the Arts would later be built. From her home on the St. John's River, Stowe wrote a series of articles that were very effective at luring northerners to Florida. In 1872, Stowe published a collection of those articles in the book Palmetto Leaves. Tony Walsh is executive director of the Thrasher Horn Center for the Arts and is performing in Southern Stories and Songs. Walsh adapted Harriet Beecher Stowe's writing for the stage. It is a discovery of what Florida was like uh, in the uh, late 1800s. The, the mystery uh, of the exotic type plants, the, the references that that you discover in reading Harriet Beecher Stowe and how she represents Florida is I, I, I walk along Clay County now and the roadways or, or, or even going outside my, my home and I revel now at the beauty of where I live. Um, sometimes we're, we take things for granted, particularly in this iPod uh, generation that we live in. Um, but to hear a writer of, of prose and narrative describe the the the, the hanging moss, the um, the exotic flowers that we have that we just kind of take for granted every day, and the imagery just sings off of the page, and this is what for me I got particularly excited about. Before this, I just kind of grouped Harriet Beecher Stowe in some sort of Civil War-type era writer and 
um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, etc., um, but never realized what a, a fine writer she really, really is. In, and her descriptive phrases, are, are they're delicious. Harriet Beecher Stowe is best known for the 1852 novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, a condemnation of slavery in the decade prior to the Civil War. Palmetto Leaves also ends with a call for human rights. While Tony Walsh says this is a work in progress, at this point, the theatrical production Southern Stories and Songs does not address Stowe's views on equality. No, not not this time around. It, and it's my intention. This is the second generation, I guess, or the, 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 the second time we've, we've uh, presented Southern Stories. And it's pretty much the same as the first time. It was the first time we read it to our audience, and they got all excited about it. And they had the same kind of uh, feeling of discovery of, that, that I had with the imagery and, and descriptive uh, phrases that she uses. The, the addition of Stephen Foster songs this time, is, is, it's a new addition. But I think down the line, we're going to bring this back maybe next year or the year after, and eventually go in, into that. At this point, I'm doing what my audience wants and wants to hear. Down the line, I think it will be more of an education into deeper Harriet Beecher Stowe. But she was a remarkable woman incredible in, 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 in her time. Susan Karkaba is a featured performer in Southern Stories and Songs. She particularly enjoys bringing the words of Harriet Beecher Stowe to the stage. Well, first of all, I lived just a few blocks from her home at one time. I've since then moved across the river, as she would say. Uh, but in reading and, uh, and actually speaking aloud, Harriet Beecher Stowe brings you to a way of speaking that no longer exists. Those people that aren't familiar with her writing, uh, think about uh, the move, the, the recent version of True Grit and how those people spoke. It was wonderfully done, and I, and I find the same sort of feeling as far as the language is concerned. There's a, there's a reverence there that no longer exists. In her attempts to entice Northerners to Florida, Harriet Beecher Stowe often reflected on the state's natural beauty. Karkaba points to Stowe's description of the mouth of the St. John's River from the mid-1800s. This is before Mayport. This is before the Naval Air Station, the Naval Station was built out there. It could very well have looked very much uh, like one of the rivers down south of us here that you go over when you, when you uh, drive down I-95 and you look down the river and you see all the palm trees and the, 1872. Uh, the oaks. Magnolia is a name suggestive of beauty. And for once, the name does not belie the fact. The boarding house there is about the pleasantest winter resort in Florida. We have been passing a day and night there as a guest of some friends and find a company of about 70 people enjoying themselves after the usual fashions of summer watering places. The house is situated on a little eminence and commands a fine sweep of view both up and down the river. In the usual fashion of Southern life, it is surrounded with wide verandas where the guests pass most of their time. The ladies chatting and working embroidery. The gentlemen reading newspapers and smoking. The amusements are boating and fishing, parties of no longer or shorter duration, rides and walks along the shore, or croquet on a fine shady croquet ground in a live oak grove back of the house. 
We tried them all. Tennessee Williams also spent some very productive years in Florida. In 1941, Williams wrote the first draft of his play *A Streetcar Named Desire* in Key West. He lived on the island from 1949 until his death in 1983. The film version of his play *The Rose Tattoo* was shot in Key West in 1956. Tony Walsh has incorporated the words of Tennessee Williams into the production *Southern Stories and Songs*. As a young actor and and writer, when I still lived in New York, I had the A distinction and an honor of of、uh, being mentored by Tennessee for a show that I I had written,、um, and it was it was optioned for New York production. It eventually didn't go anywhere, as many options happen in New York.、Uh, but it was at that time that we we would get together every afternoon for an hour and a half or two hours. And talk about the work. His agent was interested in handling me at that time, and that's how I they made the introduction. And we were talking about characterization and how you build a character and an actor's life off of the page, the past, present, possible future. And he gave me a short story of his called "The Yellow Bird" that was written in 1946-47, and he. He said, "Look at it as an exercise that I did as a young writer in building a character for Alma in Summer and Smoke." And I l- read it, and I was just fascinated. I knew Summer and Smoke, the character of Alma, who changes from Act One to Act Two. She goes from、uh, a very lovely, lo-、uh, sedate young、uh, Southern matron to. For want of a better word, a, a, a New Orleans floozy at the end of the, of the show. She goes, she gets very physical.、Um, this description of Alma, the same character, same character name, began in the Yellow Bird、uh, as a short story, and just Tennessee said, "Here, take it." It was a Xerox copy, you know, <laughs>、um, long before scanners and such. And I always wanted to read it aloud, in in a theatrical setting, and it really does take on it a sense of theater. Even though it's prose, even though it's narrative, it's a short story. The little characterizations, the little bits of character that pop out, and all of the other characters, Alma's mom and dad, and the, the spinster who visits her. It's it's all there, and it's all about the South. Increase Tutwiler was a long-winded preacher. His wife sat in the front pew of the church with a palm-leaf fan, which she would agitate violently when her husband had preached too long for anybody's endurance. But it was not always easy to catch his attention, and Alma, the daughter, would finally have to break into the offertory hymn in order to turn him off. Alma played the organ. The primitive kind of organ that had to be supplied with air by an old Negro operating a pump in a stifling cubicle behind the wall. On one occasion, the old Negro had fallen asleep, and no amount of discreet rapping availed to wake him up. The minister's wife had plucked nervously at the strings of her palm-leaf fan till it began to fall to pieces, but without the organ to stop him. Increased Tutwiler ranted on and on, exceeding the two-hour mark. It was by no means a cool summer day, and the interior of the church was yellow oak—a material that made you feel as if you were sitting in the middle of a fried egg. Stephen、at、Foster last, famously never visited Florida, despite writing "Old Folks at Home" in 1851, which would become the official state song.
Many of Foster's songs, though, evoke old Florida and the South. Tony Walsh. Even though this is a Reader's Theater or a Chamber Theater presentation, we're, we're trying to construct a, a small parlor-type situation where um, uh, there would be a piano and, and people sitting around and talking at the art of conversation and, you know, maybe playing charades, that kind of thing, when, when people actually read aloud to each other. Uh, and I thought, let's co incorporate a little music into this. And, and since um, Foster's songs, even though he visited the South once, never went down the Suwannee River, are so evocative of the imagery of the South, um, I decided to team up with Joy Myers and, and Donna Wissinger, incorporate their little uh, 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 musicale into our uh, Reader's Theater event here. Uh, and it, I think the audience is going to love it. I mean, they, they're just such, such wonderful songs. Proceeds from Southern Stories and Songs at the Thrasher Horn Center for the Arts will benefit the Roger and Gail Aerosmith Education Enhancement Fund and the Mary Ward Huntley Florida Artists Fund. You know, we've heard this too many times in, in, in moments like the economic turmoil and downturn that we are seeing now. One of the first, if not the very first, uh, thing to go in the schools is the, are the arts programs. And Clay County is no different than any other county in America right now. And we have two wonderful benefactors, uh, Mary Ward Huntley, uh, who established a fund for us called the Florida Artist Fund, which deals with visual artists, and Roger and Gail Arrowsmith, which established an education enhancement fund for the performing arts. And it helps us fund and subsidize ticket prices for students who are coming to next season's shows. In addition to staging productions of Southern Stories and Songs, for many years, Tony Walsh directed Paul Green's Cross and Sword, the official state play of Florida. That outdoor production was performed annually in St. Augustine until 1997. Walsh says that theater is a great medium for stimulating an interest in Florida history. Oh yes, most definitely, and Florida is just peppered with so many so many wonderful writers and actors and performers and as you yourself know even though cross and sword isn't produced anymore unfortunately by the city of saint augustine it was produced for what 30 35 years and think about all of those actors and actresses and dancers and apprentices who walked on that stage who have a connection there's this whole family of us somewhere, not just in, in Florida, but throughout the United States. Invariably, every now and then, thanks to the wonders of Facebook, I'll hear from someone who is, I, you may not remember me, but I was in your 1983 production of Cross and Sword. I played wow. Prince Philip. Just blows my mind. The Thrasher Horn Center for the Arts at St. John's River State College in Orange Park presents Southern Stories and Songs with Executive Director Tony Walsh, actress Susan Karkaba, flute player Donna Wissinger, and pianist Joy Myers. The production features the words of Harriet Beecher Stowe and Tennessee Williams and the music of Stephen Foster. One has often remarked what a misty effect the first buddings of foliage have. Here there was a mist of many colors rose-colored, pink, crimson, yellow, and vivid green, the hues of the young leaves or of the different tags and keys of the different species of trees. Here and there a wild plum sheeted in brilliant white varied the tableau. We rode up to the shore, drew down a branch, 
and filled the laps of the ladies with sprays of wild flowers. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch video from our original theatrical productions, look at historic photographs, listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. In 1936, a military rebellion led by General Francisco Franco sought to overthrow the government of the Spanish Republic. The Popular Front, a coalition of socialists and republicans, fiercely resisted. Hundreds of thousands of Spaniards died in a brutal conflict known as the Spanish Civil War. In Tampa, the city's Spanish community faithfully and vigorously supported the Popular Front, raising a staggering $200,000 for the Republic and purchasing four ambulances for the Spanish Red Cross. Latin women collected clothing and milk for war-torn Spain. Children organized paper drives, joined clubs, and sang No Pasaran, they shall not pass. Floridians witness a dress rehearsal for World War II as Germany, Italy, and the Soviet Union sent troops and munitions to their respective sides. When General Franco finally triumphed in 1938, Tampeños wept. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap! The job's a game, and every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree, it's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine go down, just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. Members of the Visiting Nurse Association of the Treasure Coast recently shared memories of practicing medicine in rural Florida with Janie Gould. The Visiting Nurse Association of the Treasure Coast is marking its 35th anniversary this year. Anne-Marie McChrystal, one of its organizers, first learned about home health care when she was training to become an operating room nurse in Miami. We would make home visits in the outlying areas of Miami. We would take a little black bag and newspaper. If we were going to make four visits, you would fold up four different newspaper pages that would be part of your little black bag. Because when you went into someone's home, the first thing you did was you laid out a double sheet of newspaper on the table because you never knew if that table was very clean, but you always knew that the newspaper was what we considered 
quote unquote, sterile in those days. That's what you put your black bag down on. And that's when you opened up your black bag, your stethoscope or whatever equipment you were bringing for the day. That's how we plied our trade. Did it matter whether the newspaper had been read or not? I don't think so. But it was mostly just the morning Miami Herald, I think, at the time. I can remember one gal whose little boy was in this mobile home that I was visiting, making this home visit. Her little boy had a tape around his foot. I said, has he had an infection or something? She said, yes, he cut himself outside on an old can, and I put fat back and a penny on it, and I wrapped it up, and it'll be just fine. I've heard of that as a home remedy. What did you say to the lady? I asked her if I could just untape it, that I had some clean dressings, and could I just look at it? She was very nice. She was expecting another baby. That's why I was there. Nevertheless, I did unwrap it, and I looked at it, and it actually looked like it was healing pretty well. I did put a clean dressing on it, and I told her that heretofore, maybe fat pack and a penny, but if it works, I guess it works. It's an old-fashioned remedy. McChrystal and her husband, Dr. Hugh McChrystal, a urologist, moved to Vero Beach in the mid-1960s. There were only 24 physicians in Indian River County, can you imagine? They're over 350 today. A few years later, the late Marion Urchner moved to Vero Beach from Wisconsin, where she had served on a VNA board. She determined that this community could really use a VNA, a home care agency. She put together a group of people and uh, explained the concept of starting a VNA. Now, at that time, the physicians were beginning to not do house calls. They were spending more time in the office. To be perfectly honest, they were very suspect of having nurses take care of their patients in the home. Why was that? Well, I don't know if they thought maybe we were going to steal them away. Of course, we weren't. Or maybe it was just a matter of trust. They couldn't be over our shoulders to make sure that what we were doing was correct. However, I think they realized once we actually started home visits and they could see that what we were doing was benefiting their patients and they weren't getting all those pesky phone calls at their office and at home from these patients with questions that were important to the patients, but maybe were not as clinically important to the physician. So they started trusting the nurses at the VNA. We got more and more referrals. So the business just began to boom. That was Anne-Marie McChrystal of Vero Beach. The VNA got rolling in 1975 after philanthropist Dan Richardson donated $10,000 and the Gulf and Western Corporation did likewise at the behest of company executive Dale Sorensen. In that first year, the VNA had one nurse and one home health aide. Now, with more than 500 associates, it's one of the five largest employers in Indian River County. The VNA made 66,000 home visits last year alone. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Recent years have seen the growth of new venues for showing feature films and documentaries focusing on life in the Caribbean basin. Bill Dudley talks to some of the people presenting these films to find out why they're especially relevant for Florida audiences. Manzanillo, Habana, será vendido un pasaje. Un pasaje. 
In a film called The Waiting List, a group of passengers is stranded for days in a small-town bus terminal somewhere in Cuba. This was one of the films shown at the yearly Caribbean Film Festival, coordinated by Florida A&M University humanities professor Jan DeCosmo. You can't see these films in other places. They're not <laughs> offered in the mainstream theaters unless you have special festivals. The films are kind of ghettoized in a way. These are films that give us a glimpse of the humanity of everyday people in places most Americans will never visit, helping us gain a new understanding of different places and different cultures. Most of the time what people think about the Caribbean and African diaspora cultures are just spaces in their heads that have been filled in with stereotypes from popular culture. So when they see the reality of people's lives in the films, it's very eye-opening, to say the least. I'm sure most American families would be very embarrassed to know at what price they put sugar in their coffee every morning. The Price of Sugar, a documentary about Haitian sugarcane workers in the Dominican Republic, was one of a series of films shown at the University of Florida, sponsored by the Center for Latin American Studies. The film was looking at Haitian migration to the Dominican Republic, but it has a lot to tell us about why Haitians come to, to the U.S. It's showing what that alternative is for them. Carmen Diana Deer is director of the center, whose film series focused on immigration, legal and illegal, from the Caribbean to the U.S., especially Florida. We're the gateway state for the Caribbean and, and Latin America in, in general, you know, in the sense that such an important share of immigrants, both legal and illegal, come through Florida. So I think that you need to understand the conditions that create you know, immigration or why people migrate. The thought of going back to Cuba frightened me. But after 18 years of seeing my dad unhappy, I thought it was worth the risk. In each of the two series, films were introduced by either a local or visiting scholar and were followed by give and take with the audience. In Tallahassee, films were screened at various locations, including libraries, community centers, and a room at the downtown Amtrak station. One of our aims was to try to attract non-traditional audiences. So we went, you know, into community centers and uh, places like that to present the film. Olu Shagan Williams, a Tallahassee folklorist and performer, introduced one of the films in the series. There's a strong emphasis on multicultural education and experiences right now. So for people who don't have the opportunity to travel and see these things firsthand, this is a good way to get in touch with other parts of the world and how people live elsewhere. I'm going to challenge Olivine for your title. You, Mama? Yes. In the next few weeks, I could be the new dancehall queen. I don't think I like the sound of that. Dancehall Queen, the story of a single mother struggling to take care of her family, takes place in the streets and in the dance halls of Jamaica. The film's presenter, FAMU psychology professor Huberta Jackson Lohman, says seeing the commonalities across different cultures might help us gain insight into some of our own issues. We look at the circumstances of women across the world, we see a lot of commonalities. This particular film, I think, helped to reveal some of those commonalities. Sometimes people are not even able to get in touch with some of their own oppressive circumstances without looking at somebody who's outside of that circumstance in a different society and then perhaps maybe using that as a tool for them to gain some awareness of things that go on with inside their own culture and society. And with the century-long flow of immigration from our neighbors to the south, many now believe Florida should be seen as a part of the Caribbean. I think it's, it's very important to understand other folks' heritage, the richness of all these different cultures that, that we're incorporating.
we're hoping through the film series to show both these very positive aspects of, of what we have gained from you know, the different waves of, of immigration, as well as an understanding of why this takes place. And a lot of these movies, are, they're not you know, mainstream movies. We were attempting to bring in another genre of films that are not the kinds you'll see in the in the multiplex movie theaters. There were no car chase scenes in any of these movies or anything like that. You know, to bring some kind of message, so they give you a little different different outlook on things and a chance to see you know what life is like in some other parts of the world, and in this case, particularly the Caribbean. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.